Guys, uh, get your Bibles out and uh, open them to the 13th chapter of John. But before I read my text, uh, I, I got to say something. <laughs> um, and it really is hard to find the right words to say concerning what happened last week. It's, it's, I, I'm addressing, of course, the issue of Vacation Bible School. Um, you know, I, I, I preach your talk. I, I'm sure you probably know they, they get carried away, and, and, and I'm just as guilty as anybody. But um, I, I just wish that you all could be, have some kind of exposure to that thing. Um, th- th- there is so much volunteerism that's going on for that week, intensely for five straight days, Whole families, the Gould family, the, the, uh, the, the Randolph family, all of them involved in this thing, pulling off, trying to minister the gospel to your kids. Um, these women and, and some, a handful of men are just so blasted impressive. What they've done and what, uh, how they've done it and, the, the, the scale on which it has been done, it is just mind-boggling to, to see what went on here this week. And I'm, I, I hope that in, someday in the future you'll be able to be a part of it. But guys, um, it is just, it is the purest, intensest week of gospel that, that we have, I think. All brought to you uh, courtesy of Saw a whole lot of hard-working families and, and women in this church. So, guys, I, 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 I applaud. I don't know what else to say. Um, it, 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 you just, I guess I could go over the top, but, you know, it's just unbelievable what you did. And I, I think, and by the way, the, the, the lady who ran that is a little Allison Randolph. She was up here one Sunday, and, um, you know, she's got four kids, I think, and they, they come up here all day long for weeks in advance and it's just um if your child was in that you might want to you might want to stop her in the hall and tell her how grateful you are for for the investment that that woman has made and her family in um, in your family it's it's a sweet thing okay i gotta move on uh, i'd love to say more um john chapter 13 are you there um I want to read you one verse. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, that word endures forever. Guys, um, we're going to start a new series today, and, um, and I'm going to take this morning, all of it, to introduce the series. Now, I, I, and I know that introductions are uh, notoriously boring or at least my introductions are notoriously boring. Uh, and I, I'm sorry for that. But it, it's, my thought is, we've got, we've got a whole lot in front of us, 
And if we could take a Sunday and just get ready for it, it would, it would enhance the value of it once we get there. We are going to study four chapters out of the Gospel of John. Chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. And quite frankly, I should have thrown in chapter 17. But I didn't. Let me tell you why. Chapter 17 is a different kind of passage. Do you know what John 17? John 17 is called the high priestly prayer. It's a prayer. Jesus prays John 17. So it's different from these other four chapters, 13, 14, 15, 16. Um, so that's the first reason that I, that's the main reason that I'm not going to include it. The other reason is it would just add another couple of three or four months to a, what is already going to be a very lengthy series in these four chapters. This four-chapter section of the New Testament has a name. Uh, have you ever heard of the Olivet Discourse? Well, that's not what this is. This is not the Olivet Discourse. However, the Olivet Discourse, which is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, occurs at the same time, in the same time frame. Um, but in the Olivet Discourse, found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those three authors choose to focus on some subjects like the destruction of Jerusalem, Jesus' second coming, and John rarely, if ever, even mentions those in these four chapters. His focus is on something else. Now, the Olivet Discourse and these four chapters, they occur at the same, in the t- same time frame. But the subject matter is vastly different. The name that so many use to describe these four chapters is what's it's called the Upper Room Discourse. Um, and, and understandably so, um, a lot of people would tell you that all four of these chapters are, um, uh, are this conversation takes place in the upper room. I, 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 would, def- I, would, I would disagree. I, I would think at the end of chapter 14, he goes to the Mount of Olives. But very frankly, ladies and gentlemen, I don't care where it takes place. What I want to know is what is said. The content, I mean, the, the location is not important to me, but the content, the content, oh, the content, uh, it is of immense interest to me, and I, and I hope to you. I'm calling my series, or I'm calling this section of Scripture, and by the way, I'm not alone in this, but I, it's probably a minority position. I, I, I'm calling it the Paschal Discourse of Jesus Christ. That's going to be our series for the next new lots of months. The Paschal Discourse of Jesus Christ. Um, now, don't let that word Paschal stump you. Uh, it's just an adjective. Um, and the adjective refers to anything associated with Passover. You'll notice that the text opens up now before the Feast of the Passover. Um, this, these four chapters occur during this immensely important festival and celebration in Israel called the Passover. You remember when, when, the, when the families would go out and, and, and buy a lamb and, and they would kill it and, and they would eat it for Passover? It was called the Paschal Lamb. Because it was the lamb that was eaten at Passover. So it was the Paschal Lamb. Well, this is the Paschal 
discourse of Jesus Christ. It's the discourse, it's the lecture, it's the conversation, whatever you want to call it, that takes place at the Passover, which, by the way, as you probably already know, it's the last Passover. It's the last Passover. In fact, and I'm going to say this more and more, but he's only hours away from death. So this is what we're going to call the Paschal Discourse of Jesus Christ. Now, let me tell you just a little bit about it. (laughs) Guys, you know, I'm a master of overstatement, and you know that, oh, just Jimmy, just running his mouth again. But I don't think this is overstatement. Some of the richest, most satisfying words that ever come out of the mouth of Jesus Christ are found in John 13, 14, and 15. This this section of Scripture is some of the most, some of the deepest theological discussion. And I'm telling you guys, I need to warn you. Actually, I don't like the word warning because it's so negative, but let me give you a heads up. The discussions that we will have around those four chapters will be some of the most theologically intense that you've ever heard from this pulpit. Uh, For example, you do know, or maybe you don't know, but much of what we know about God the Holy Spirit, it comes from Matthew 13, 14, 15, and 16. Uh, The Trinity, the Trinity is mentioned several times. Is there anything tougher than the Trinity? Uh, The Trinity is mentioned several times in this section of Scripture. Um, Our union with Christ, it's all over this section of Scripture. Now, guys, I I don't know how much you've, um, you've, how much you know about the gospel of John. And, and if somebody told you that the gospel of John was the simple gospel, it was just, it was the simple book. Well, they didn't tell you the truth. Um, it is true that the, that the writer, John, he writes in simple Greek sentences. Yes, he does. He writes things like this. I am the way. <laughs> Now, guys, that's easy to translate. I can translate that. I'm no Greek scholar, but I can translate that. I can take my Greek New Testament, and I can translate sentences like that for you because they're simple uh, six-word sentences from the pen of John. But to explain them, to understand them, That's a different story. Gang, have you ever heard of the Logos theme? You probably haven't, but um, if you've had any theological training, you have. The Logos theme out of John chapter 1 has stumped uh, theologians and philosophers, tied them in knots for centuries. Um, I would say to you, and this is my heads up to you, that the gospel of John is the most theological, 
of all of the four Gospels. Now, with that in mind, I find myself conflicted. (laughs) You know why I'm conflicted? Because I love you. (laughs) Um, Let me explain what I mean. Guys, I find myself wanting, I find myself hesitating to jump into this. I find myself wanting to apologize to you. Um, because I'm up here thinking, you know what they're thinking? They're thinking, oh my gosh, theology? I don't want any theology. I don't like theology. I don't like theology because it's so difficult. And I, I, just give me Jesus, you know, just give me some more Ruth. Don't do, I mean, I, you know, doctrine divides and I, I don't... I, you know, my buddy R.C. Sproul used to say to people when they said something like that, he would say this. He would say, I understand. I get you. What you're saying is you don't want heavy theology. You just want Jesus, right? Right? right. And then he would say, can I ask you a question? Who is Jesus? And then immediately, we have launched a serious theological discussion. Okay, Dr. Young, I, I get what you're saying, but you know, I, um, don't you have something more in the line of Ruth? Um, you know, guys, I think one of the reasons that you responded so favorably to the sermon, the series on Ruth is not because the sermons were so wonderful. It was because the story was so wonderful. It was a wonderful story. Was it not? Um, and we like stories. We like stories. We, you know, we, we get involved in stories. So stories pull us in and, and we identify with some of the characters and, and then we plug ourselves into the middle of as the story as the story unfolds. We like stories. Well, this is a story. This is a story about the last few hours of the life of Jesus Christ. Jesus, you don't have to look hard to find him in these chapters because he is front and center. He's smack dab up in your face in these four chapters. This is all about Jesus. This is... This is a story about the last few hours of Jesus' life. Now, guys, um, try to imagine this with me real quickly. Imagine you're some kind of clergy type, you know, kind of like me. And you have been asked to visit a man who is on death row, who, who, who only has a few hours to live. You're a clergyman. You're visiting somebody in the prison who is about to die. Tell me, what would you talk to him about? Would you want to talk about news, weather, and sports? I don't think so. I think you would find that those conversations would be some of the most tender, the most urgent, the most poignant, the most captivating, and even the most complex. 
of, of any of the conversations that you had had with him in previous visits to the prison. Well, gang, my point is this. That is what's going on here in these last few hours of Jesus' life. He is discussing with the twelve. Actually, eleven. Judas is gone. But they still call him the twelve. He is discussing with the twelve the most tender, the most poignant, the most important, and even the most complex of issues that you can find him anywhere else in the New Testament. You will find them right here in these four chapters. Pastorally speaking, I am going to try to do here what I think Jesus is doing here. I I am going to try and guard you against being carried about by any wind of doctrine, which I think is what Jesus is doing in these last hours of his life. I'm going to try to do that for us, to take his words and, and, and guard you with them, guard us with them. And, and guys, um, I am going to do my best to make this section of Scripture as user-friendly as I can possibly make it. But there is nothing, nothing that you need more than biblical theology. Um, Thinking right thoughts about God. Thinking God's thoughts after him. There's nothing. And and I know you don't... I know when you go to work tomorrow morning, you're not be thinking, oh, there's nothing as important to me as as theology. I'm saying to you guys, in, in truth... There's nothing. There's nothing more important to you than thinking right thoughts about who God is and what he says. And that's what we call theology. Now, I want to give you two reasons, and then I'm going to quit. (laughs) I'm going to give you two reasons this morning as to why um, theology is so important. And, and I hope I can convince you. I hope you will be convinced. I hope you'll say, oh, well, bring it on then, Dr. Young. I can't wait. Um, but but there's, there's two reasons, I'm, I'm sure among many reasons, but I don't have time for the many. I only have time for two. Two reasons why, um, why theology is so important. Here's number one. It is theology that gives us, or it gives us a definition. It allows us to define meaning of life, of my life. It gives me the, it gives me the input and the data so that I can come up with some kind of, make some kind of sense of my life, of this life. Let me, let me tell you a story. 
that I hope will make this point. When I was a student at the University of Tennessee, um, that was in 1966 to 70, you know, back when we wrote pictures of animals on the walls of caves, um, I, I had to find a major when I was a student there. And, and of course, what I did is just took the catalog and tried to find out what I, you know, didn't, didn't have accounting in it or languages. I didn't like either one of those. So I just picked one that, you know, that didn't have a whole lot of that stuff in there. And I found one called personnel management. My degree, my undergraduate degree is in personnel management. I have a BS in personnel management. Now, do you know what a personnel manager does? Well, what a personnel manager is trained to do is to try to get more productivity out of workers for less money. That is, lower expenses and raise revenue. Now, boy, that's not rocket science, isn't it? Everybody wants to do that. Lower expenses, raise revenue. But the big question for the personnel manager was how? How do you do that? Well, one solution that, that we were taught is that uh, it, it's very important that you hire the right people. That is, that job satisfaction uh, uh, occurred in the employment office. That is, if you found a square peg for a square hole, then they would be satisfied and they'd produce more and you know, expenses go down and revenues go up, et cetera. But you got to do a good job of hiring correctly. But the other thing, which was the big thing that they taught us uh, about motivating your employees, <coughs> how to motivate the workforce. That's what I'm trained to do, ladies and gentlemen. Motivate the workforce. What they taught us was a thing that I bet you many of you have heard about. It, was, it first came out of, in 1943 called Abraham Maslow's uh, Hierarchy of Needs. I bet you've heard of that. I mean, if you've been in a business school any place, I mean, Abraham Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. And he illustrated it with a, with a pyramid, you remember? And so he said at the bottom level of the pyramid are the most basic needs we have, like food and water and, and clothing and housing. And so, and so in your employees, you got to make sure you got to meet those needs. But right above that one is the desire to love and be loved. And then the, the one, the, the, the very top one, the, the top need is what Maslow called self-actualization. Self-actualization. So I, you know, I studied hard. I made good grades. I graduated. I was a pagan at the time, but I uh, graduated and um, I, I, you know, I got it. I'm going to go out there into the corporate world and I'm going to change the way they do things. I'll show them. And I graduated in 1970 and I took a job with Procter & Gamble with my degree in personnel management. What I was not taught is that a year later, in 1971, I graduated in 70. In 1971, Abraham Maslow wrote another book in which he repudiated everything that he had taught. Now, I'm out in the corporate world. I mean, you know, the, you know, you can't, you can't motivate them if you meet those needs with money anymore. You gotta do it. And he's written a book. In fact, I got the title of the book. It's called, um, uh, The Farther Reaches of Human Nature. He repudiated everything that he had taught, everything that I had learned, everything that was a, my, my degree was based upon. 
He repudiated all of that. And he said, now what he was teaching in this book is that people, listen, people were looking for meaning. Meaning. His words. Beyond themselves. And he called that, get this, transcendence. Now, Abraham Maslow was not a Christian, so he would never call transcendence, he would never equate transcendence with God. But nor did he ever even define what he meant by transcendence. Today, you know, in the 21st century, all of us would agree with Maslow's, Maslow's second book. We agree that there's this human longing. And, and C.S. Lewis had a word for it. He called it an, an inconsolable longing. That that longing has to be fulfilled only in something outside of self. Maslow taught me that it was supposed to be self-actualization. But then he repudiated that. And then he said, oh, well, the, you know, it's got to go. Your meaning is going to go outside of self. In something that he called transcendence. So, okay. Down with Maslow. Out with self-actualization. And up with transcendence. But wait a minute. What is that? What is that transcendent stuff? Uh, I got this inconsolable longing. It's supposed to be for a transcendence, but what is that? That, ladies and gentlemen, is where theology will help you. It will give you a definition. It will, it will put some, it will fill in the word transcendence and set you on a path so that you can begin to pursue this inconsolable longing. Psychology by definition cannot do that for you. It is theology. It is theology, and I would say theology alone, that will help you fill in the blanks of what this blessed thing we call life is all about. You can try to figure it out yourself if you like. As you can see, our planet is not doing real well with that. Guys, if Maslow is right, and I think the whole 21st century agrees that he is, that it's got to be, meaning has got to be found outside of me, and that he used the word transcendence, then who's going to tell me what transcendence is? Huh? I'll tell you. God is. And that's why theology is such, it's called the queen of sciences. Now, I got one more reason, then I, I got to hurry because I've only got 12 minutes left. Here's the second reason that I want to suggest to you that, that theology is so terribly important. 
It's important because it becomes the definer of acceptable behavior. That is, the lifestyle that I ought to be living. You know, one of the, one of the principles in the scriptures, it's um, we tend to become like the gods that we worship. That's in Psalm 115. So theology helps me figure out the, the parameters of acceptable behavior. Uh, did you hear what the Presbyterians did on June the 20th? The Presbyterians, when they got together, um, they decided that they were going to side with Hamas, a terrorist organization, and against Israel. And as a statement and a protest against Israel, um, they were going to sell all of their church stock that they held in companies that were connected with Israel. Uh, Hewlett-Packard, uh, Caterpillar, uh, Motorola Solutions. They're going to sell that because they're going to, they're going to side with the Palestinians. In that same meeting, um, uh, the, the, um, <laughs> the, the, the Presbyterians decided that uh, they were going to allow their pastors to marry same-sex couples but only in states where it was legal. And then, of course, four days later, the Methodists, they decided that they were going to reinstate, they were going to refrock a Pennsylvania minister that they defrocked in, in November because he participated in a same-sex marriage, uh, one of the partners being his son. Now, this, of course, is something that the Episcopalians have been after for years. And then there is, of course, the, um, um, the, the, the occasional report of, um, of the appearance of the Virgin Mary. Um, the, the, I read of one recently, it didn't happen recently, it was several years ago, where the Virgin Mary showed up um, as an impression on a, a, a piece of French toast. It wasn't French toast. Um, it was a grilled cheese. It was a grilled cheese sandwich. And um, that grilled cheese sandwich was put in a plastic bag and sold on eBay for $28,000. And then, then you throw in the, the annual blessing of the, um, of the pets liturgy that you see all around the city. And, and you begin to wonder. You begin to wonder... Um, has the church traded in transcendence for, for relevance? Guys, um, let me give you a better, what, what I think is, what I hope is a, a, a better example than that. It really comes out of Psalm 106. You don't need to turn there, but let me just read you. This is a, um, just a quick few verses in Psalm 106 where, that is written to Israel. And it says this. This is what Israel did. It says... Um, They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to demons and shed innocent blood in the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the isles of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood, but thus they were defiled by their own works and played the harlot by their own deeds. Now tell me this, ladies and gentlemen, how did these people, Israel, how did they ever come to the place where they, where they concluded that it was acceptable to sacrifice their children? How did they get there? Well, the text tells you. Verses 35 and 36, which is right above that. But they mingled with the Gentiles and learned their works. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. Do you see what happened? Israel mingled with the Gentiles, 
saw those other gods, began to worship them, and as a result, as a result of worshiping those other gods, they came to the conclusion, oh, I'll tell you what we ought to do. Let's just sacrifice our kids. What about it? What, does that sound like a good day, idea to anybody? Apparently it did. It says it became a snare. A snare? I'll say it became a snare. Those, those false gods gave rise, gave permission for that kind of behavior. Guys, if you get a hold of the wrong God, there's no telling what you will do. As, by the way, we are seeing presently with Islam. Heard a man say recently that he felt like Islam was the scourge of the planet. You know, I agree with that mostly. Uh, if, If you don't mean individual Muslims, the people. But if you're talking about the tenets of Islam, I agree entirely. Gang, um, none of us should be surprised at what is being done in the name of Allah if one believes the things that are taught in the Quran, or if you know what Muhammad was like. Guys, Hitler, you know, Hitler believed in the superiority of the, um, of the uh, uh, Aryan race. And as a result... He went out and murdered six million Jews. Now, do you, do you know my point, or do you, have I lost you? Here, here's my point. Gang, you cannot separate what a man believes from what he is. If we go astray in doctrine, we will inevitably go astray in life. You attach yourself to the wrong God and you'll end up in the wrong place. Let me say it simply. Ideas have consequences. And as the Bible says, as a man thinketh, so is he. Guys, A.W. Tozer once said, the most important thoughts that you think are the thoughts that you think about God. So when there are meager, foolish, profane, illicit, faulty, juvenile thoughts of God, what you end up with is people living meager, foolish, profane, illicit, faulty, juvenile lives. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, the evangelical church is full of that. Full of it. Why? Because of a theology that is faulty. A wrong view of God. Which has given birth to a lifestyle that is, on occasion, unconscionable. Guys, those are my two reasons. Why theology is so important. It, it, it gives me a definition of life, and it helps me define acceptable behavior. Now, let me close. If there is any section of Scripture that can correct our faulty views of God,
It is John 13, 14, 15, and 16. The Paschal Discourse of Jesus Christ. The Paschal Lamb. You know, I think Jesus' goal in, in this section of Scripture was to comfort his disciples. But did you notice how he comforted them? He taught them. My dear brother and sister in Jesus Christ, I cannot love you better than to teach you fully, accurately, truly, biblically what God is like. Nor can I express my love of Jesus to Jesus Christ unless I labor at feeding the sheep. That's what he said to Peter in John 21. Now, we must all beware. I mean, beware of this, guys. Our interest in these matters that are contained in these four chapters cannot be merely theoretical. I want to learn things, yes. But I want to learn them so that my life will be changed. So that my life will better reflect who God is. I want to learn things about who he is so that I can change my life accordingly. So that my life will reflect who he is. I want to know things about him which I can't discover in a grilled cheese sandwich. I want to know things about him. And I want it to change my life. My goal, our goal, our goal must be not to get smarter, but to get holier. A holiness that is derived from God the Holy Spirit teaching us his word. And then enabling us to go live it. Bible explanations by itself produce puffed up heads and shriveled hearts. If what you learn from these chapters does not lead to a changed life, then you didn't learn it. We don't just need more God information. We need God intimacy. And if that is appealing to you, if you're ready for that kind of moving storytelling, that kind of moving conversation, then welcome. Welcome to the Paschal Discourse of the Paschal Lamb. The Lamb that was slain before the foundations of the earth. The lamb, the unblemished lamb who takes away the sin of the world. My friends, no thoughts you think are as important as the thoughts you think about who Jesus Christ is and what he did.
Tell me. To you. Who is Jesus Christ? Our Father, I I pray that you will assist me to proclaim things that are beyond me, above me, um, things that are um, rich and necessary, essential, essential in helping us define what this life is all about, things that are essential to help me define what is acceptable behavior, what, what is right living as opposed to wrong. Oh God, would you, would you use these, this section of Scripture to change us all and to bring us to the place where we, we see the thrice holy God in a way that we have never seen him before. We want to know you, O oh God. We are sorry that we know you so little. So would you put us on a path of understanding you in a way that we've never understood you before? Use your word to do that, Father. And then use your spirit to enable us to go live like what we've just learned. That's our intention, Father. We want to be a blessing to this world in terms of our behavior, but we also want to be a blessing broadcasting the gospel of Jesus Christ, that it is in Christ and and in him only where life can be had. We commit ourselves to that, Father, knowing that if you do not assist us, we will fail. We apply, of course, in Jesus' name.